Tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to Romans 10, verses 21. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hi there, everyone. It's really good to be back here in Romans again. What a fantastic book of the Bible. I hope you're enjoying this brief letter. Maybe it's the first time you've tuned in to us. What an incredible story. What an incredible message we've been unpacking over these last number of months. If you'd like to check in on what we've been doing, our other recordings are available on YouTube. It'd be really good if you were able to catch up with where we are. We're in this very significant section of Romans. Of course, all of the Bible All of Romans is significant, but chapters 9, 10, and 11 are hugely significant. 
Paul has outlined what the gospel is, the necessity of the gospel from chapter 1, right through to how God has achieved what we needed, that is rescued by him, then how that's put into our lives, into our hearts, chapter 4, what it brings, chapter 5, the struggles, the existing struggles with sin, chapter 6 and 7, then chapters 8, chapter 8 rather, we looked at it over three, four sermons, because it's such an incredible chapter, chapter 8. All of the gospel is contained in Romans 1 to 8, but then he turns his attention, chapter 9, to the Jews who had first received the gospel. But as you see from this reading this evening, they didn't accept it readily, chapter 10. And he works through that, chapter 10, and he tells them how they are to receive it like the Gentiles are to receive it. And then chapter 11, an incredible passage which includes us. The gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, and we're included that in Romans chapter 10. So 9, 10, 11, this little unit, it's worthwhile having a look back, a check back in last week's sermon. It was all of chapter 9. This week, we're looking at all of chapter 10. So let's pray as we have a look at it. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we praise you that you love us. You've loved us so much that you've given us Jesus, you've sent him into this world, that you've given us the gospel, that we may believe, that we may be forgiven. You've given us preachers, Lord, into our lives who've preached the word of God, who've spoken of Jesus, and we have responded in repentance of faith because by your Holy Spirit, we've been moved to do so. Father, we thank you that that same Spirit has inspired these words, that these are your words. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd understand them as we hear them now in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul addresses lots of questions in the book of Romans. And it's a brilliant book, of course, and the way that it's written is quite brilliant. He anticipates the questions that are in your mind as you read it. For those who first heard it in Rome, the mix of Jew and Gentile Christians, he anticipates the questions and he answers them. So you'll see this at various points within the whole book. You'll see him answering the question that I'm sure, if you're reading it in a consecutive whole, the questions that have been raised, risen in your mind as you're reading it. He answers them. When it comes to the end of chapter 5, for example, which starts, therefore, since we've been justified, we have peace with God. And of course, the human mind will think, okay, so we've got the ticket to heaven. We're secure. We're absolutely secure. We're absolutely solid in Jesus. There's nothing, no condemnation for us. Chapter 5. Of course, the human mind, the sinful human mind will think, I wonder could I get away with sinning? Paul moves into answering that precise question in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Certainly not. Absolutely not. That's the way the book of Romans is constructed. Then, of course, we get to these chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the question remains for Paul, what about the Jews? What about those who had first access to the gospel? Is God fair in his treatment of all of humanity, and particularly the Jewish people? He anticipates that question in the minds of his readers, in the minds of his hearers. And that is a fundamental question that the book of Romans answers. That's a fundamental question that every single human being, whether Christian or not, asks, raises about God. Is God in his treatment of me fair? Is God in his treatment of humanity across the generations 
fair? Is God fair? You might find it a bit annoying, but Paul answers those questions, and that particular question, is God fair? Does he have favorites? Does he discriminate? Romans chapter 1, if you go right back there, well, not go now, but if you go right back there, Paul addresses just exactly how all of humanity is seen by God. Chapter 1, all of humanity has rebelled against God, has closed their hearts, and instead of worshiping the true and the living God, worship idols instead. That's Romans chapter 1. Of course, some might come back to Paul and say, look, God hasn't given me any evidence or any witness that he's there, that he exists. That question is, of course, anticipated by Paul and in Romans chapter 1 is answered by Paul. God says that every single human being knows that there is a God, knows that there's one to whom we're accountable. The evidence is in creation. So no one has any excuse as far as concerned, as far as God is concerned. And though we know the truth, we believe lies instead. Is God fair? The answer is yes, he is fair. Romans chapter 1. He has given us a witness as to who he is. Does he hold the Gentiles, does he believe them or have them in a more guilty position than the Jews? Well, no. Are the Jews in a more privileged position? Yes. But does that give them any advantage as far as God is concerned? Well, Romans chapter 2 answers that question. And the answer is no. The Jews have everything. And we see this reflected in Romans chapter 10. The Jews have everything necessary to have a right relationship with the true and the living God. Do they have some kind of advantage which makes humanity feel that God is somehow unfair? Well, no, they don't, as far as God is concerned. They think it, but does God think it? Does it make them automatically members of his family? Does it mean that they're automatically saved? Well, the answer is no. Romans 2 answers this question for us. And then you go into Romans chapter 3, and you hear about the level playing field that all of humanity is on. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is God fair in his dealings with humanity? Yes, absolutely fair. Then we get into Romans chapter 10, where Paul, in Romans chapter 8, outlines that God has chosen his family, that God has not favored one group of people over another, Jew and Gentile, but he has chosen his family from amongst the human race. Romans chapter 8. God has chosen, he's predestined, and those whom he has chosen, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he's glorified. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 9, we thought about this last week. Romans chapter 9 speaks about Israel particularly. And Paul works through, how is it that some have received Jesus and the message and that others haven't? How is it some have had their hearts hardened 
and who they themselves have hardened their own hearts. How is that the case? Why is that the case? Is God fair? Does that mean somehow God has held something back from the Jews? Does that mean they're automatically condemned? Does that mean they're just simply condemned towards destruction and there's no hope of salvation and that God has not been fair in his dealings with that particular people group? Well, Romans chapter 10 answers this. He works out for us in this chapter why it's the case that not everyone, not every Jew, though privileged, though given the gospel, who has Abraham as their father, Paul works out for us why it is the case that not everyone from that particular people group has responded positively to Jesus. So let's get into the text now. Romans chapter 10, we'll just remind ourselves what at the very end of Romans chapter 9, where Paul is going, we had it read for us, Romans chapter 9 verse 30, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Isn't this striking? I mean, it's counterintuitive. We think that the way to get right with God is by being devout by being religious, by fulfilling all those sorts of religious works and religious acts of devotion. Surely God will smile from heaven on those who do that and forgive them and bring them into his kingdom. Well, that is not the case. And the Jews prove that that is not the case. Religious zeal does not save. That's my first point, if you want to just scribble that down. Religious zeal doesn't save. It never has. Do you see what the Israelites have been given? They've been given the law. They know about righteousness. They know what it looks like to be righteous. But instead of believing the law, they have attempted to do it. They have attempted to fulfill it themselves. The Bible says that that is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Even the most zealous cannot do it. That was a particular category in Paul's day, religious category in Paul's day. The zealots were a particular group within the Jewish community who were extremely devout, who were extremely zealous for the works of God, who were extremely faithful to God. But did that save them? Indeed, by and large, the Jews, small z, were zealots for God. They were zealous for His works, for His honor, for His glory. But did that save them? Is that how they would obtain righteousness? They'd been given the law to show them righteousness. They've been given the law, as we find out in chapter 6. They've been given the law, all of humanity has been given the law, 
to say, no, here is the example. Here is the example as to the godly life. But they were looking for the answers in the wrong place. Their zealousness was placed in themselves. They imagined that they could attain it, that they could do it. Instead, what they should have done was believe it. Religious zeal doesn't save. Listen to these words from chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Do you hear Paul's anguish? Paul himself was an Israelite. This is his brothers and sisters, his mom and dad, his cousins, his, the kids he played at school with at the local Jewish school. This is Paul's heart for them. My heart's desire. You can hear the anguish in him, can't you? People say that Paul is a bit hard-nosed, a bit hard-hearted. You know, he's nasty, just the legalist. But you have some of Paul's heart here, don't you? My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's calling to God, and you can see him pray for them throughout these chapters. He's calling to God that God would reach out and save them. But he makes the point later on that God has been calling them, that God is absolutely fair towards them. Look at verse 2. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, if some of them were sitting here listening to this, they would say, ah, yeah, but our zeal is based on knowledge. We know all about the law. We know all about how to keep the law. In fact, we've created a whole pile of rules around the law, additional rules that enable us to keep in close precision the rules of the Old Testament. But the thing is, it was not based on a true knowledge. For that knowledge of the law would have brought them to an acknowledgement that they could not themselves fulfill the law. That, that it was only Jesus who is the one who fulfilled the law. This is Paul. This is an internal testimony, if you like, from within the Jewish community. Paul looks at those who are seeking God, who are going for God in all sincerity with the zeal. Now, this is, Paul is not kind of being critical of the zealousness. He sees it as a measure of their sincerity. But regardless of their sincerity, it was misdirected, going the wrong way not based on knowledge, as he says in verse 2. Verse 3, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. There are many religious people in our land today. There are many religious people who attend church, who are really engaged in church, who come along even to the prayer meetings, who take Bible notes, who read Bible books, and might even have their own Bible and read their own Bible. And they imagine somehow by doing all of that stuff that they have attained what's necessary to have a right relationship with God. And they base their confidence on what they're doing, what they do. They imagine themselves 
that by doing good deeds, good actions, with good intentions, that the outcome will be good. That somehow God will look down on them and smile on them and say, yep, your good deeds have persuaded me. I will let you into my kingdom. You're one of my children. You're forgiven. Particularly around this time of the year, the Lenten period in the lead up to Easter. People give up things, imagining that somehow God's smile will broaden even more at them because they've done that. That somehow their own personal righteousness will have been established more firmly, more big. But that is not how it works as far as God is concerned. You might be listening to this today and you might be one of those people who imagines that the good things that I do will all add up and God will be pleased with me. Well, look, you have your predecessors and your predecessors are here being described by Paul in Romans chapter 10. Those who attempt to achieve their own righteousness by doing their own things do not have God's righteousness. They do not, verse 3, submit to God's righteousness. And what is God's righteousness? Sorry, who is God's righteousness? Well, verse 4, Christ. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly in every aspect. He did not break any aspect of it. The Jewish leaders at the time tried to trip Jesus up by asking him various questions on divorce, for example, on the Sabbath. But Jesus, in his answers, showed that he was maintaining what the law said through knowing its intention. Jesus believed it. Jesus lived it. He was its culmination, its fulfillment. You see, we cannot live the life that Jesus lived. Because Romans chapter 1 through to 3 describes you and me, how we've rebelled against God, how we continually twist God in our minds, His truth and His demands in our minds. And what we are doing is establishing for ourselves our own righteousness and not accepting the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ. In the next few lines, whilst Paul has said religious zeal doesn't save, and that that has always been the case, and please hear that warning, religious zeal and devotion and seriousness does not save. What does save, and this is almost embarrassing, isn't it? What does save is very simple. Really, really simple. Simply by believing in Jesus simply by admitting that Jesus is Lord. So religious, doesn't see it. religious zeal doesn't save, first point. Second point, believing confession does save. And like the first point, it has always been the case. Look at verse 5. Moses writes about the, this, about the righteousness that is by the law. Quote, the person who does these things will live by them. 
But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, you may have said, Trevor, hang on. Moses and Paul have just contradicted you because you said the Jews tried to do the things of the law so that they would live by them, that they would gain righteousness by them. No, that's not quite what he's saying. When this was given in its context, it was about entering and living in the land. The person who does these things will live by them. This was for communal life in the land. Deuteronomy makes that clear. These are quotes from Deuteronomy, which actually illustrates and tells us Paul's point. This is all already known by everyone. There are no secrets as far as God is concerned. He has told us in his word, and as he quotes, he quotes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy and Isaiah. It's all there. There's no secret here. It's all there. And if only the Jews would have listened to it and believed it instead of trying to do it. So what is the way to receive God's righteousness? Well, verse 6, the first thing is, it's admitting, admitting inside ourselves that we are completely impotent as far as God is concerned. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? You see, we think we could reach and attain God. We think we can get up to God by our own efforts, by our own actions. In fact, so much so that we can bring Christ down, that our righteousness and our efforts are so brilliant, so extremely excellent that we can reach up and pull Christ down to us. Or, verse 7, the miraculous. We're so brilliant. We're so able, our own righteousness, our own attainments. We're able to reach down into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. That we're able to raise Christ from the dead. From this, the first thing that I think Deuteronomy was teaching, that Deuteronomy was teaching by all of these quotes, is admit your limitations. Admit your weakness. Admit that you cannot live the righteous life that's required. Only Jesus can do that. Only God can do that. Only God can do that for us. We cannot perform that miracle, can we? We must acknowledge who we are and then who God is. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see how belief, this believing confession, saves? Do you see its contours? Jesus is Lord. Can we reach up to heaven and pull Jesus down? Can we reach into the grave, into his tomb, and pull Jesus up? No, we can't. But what is the thing that we can do? Well, simply believe. It's almost embarrassing, isn't it? That's why the world's religions, I think, and people are embarrassed of Christianity, because it seems too simple. It seems too easy. 
In order to be right with God, we think, we must do things. We make it absolutely complex, but look at how simple it really is. It's by simple confession, by simple belief. So first point, religious zeal doesn't save. Second point, believing confession does save. And you see how it continues, verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What's the significance of the mouth? Well, it is a confirmation of what's going on in your heart. It comes out from the heart that you believe. It shows what's going on inside. It kind of confirms what is inside that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 11, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah. Will never be put to shame. That means on the day of judgment. There will be no shame for the one who believes in God's Messiah. And do you see further how God is fair? He does not discriminate between Jew and Gentile. Verse 12, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There isn't a way to be saved if you're a Jew. There isn't another way to be saved if you're a Gentile. There aren't two ways to be saved. There's only one way to be saved, and that's common to both Jew and Gentile. The Jew might say, I've got the law. I've got my religious ceremonies. I've got my sacrifices, my sacrificial system. I've got all of that. Well, I'll go that way. And Gentiles, you can go that way. And we'll meet somewhere down there in heaven. Well, Paul makes clear there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. 4 verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you might ask yourself the question, I hope I've raised the question in your mind, how am I saved? I hope this text has raised the question in your mind. Well, here's the answer. If it's not about establishing my own righteousness, my own performance, if it's not based on my performance, what is it based on? Well, in this embarrassingly simple profession, this embarrassingly simple call out to the Lord. That's when salvation comes. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Jew, it's always been the case with you. You've always been challenged with this. And instead of believing it, trusting it, you've tried to do it and establish your own righteousness. You haven't listened and trusted God's word when he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's another quote from the Old Testament. This is all there. This is not made up by Paul. This is not a whole new way of approaching and addressing God. He's saying this has always been the case. As God has dealt with his people, Israel, this has always been the case, but you have distorted it. And we see this distortion even more. Because how is this work done? And by work, I mean how is the work of God done in his world? How is God's grace spread across the world? 
Well, in exactly the same way as it has been to you, the Jew. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Who is he speaking about here? Well, he's quoting Isaiah. Who are the ones with beautiful feet? Well, they're the ones who are bringing news of victory to the people of Israel. As they walk around Jerusalem and shout, there is victory. I'm bringing news of this victory. As Isaiah spoke of the beautiful feet, he's describing the messengers who bring the message of victory. How can anyone hear about this, Paul is saying, unless they are told? How can anyone hear about this unless they have heard it? Well, is God fair? Has God made this message known to Israel? Well, his answer is, of course he has. Of course he has. Look at verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. They had heard it. They had heard it. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Isaiah, in his prayer, in his lament, verse 16, who has believed our message? The prophet Isaiah laments as he's preached to his people, God's people. Who's believed us? My message has fallen on deaf ears. Consequently, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. This, by the way, is how mission is done. There is no other way that mission is done unless it's to do with the proclamation of the word about Christ. The speaking of Christ, the speaking, the verbal speaking, the, the audible speaking, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus, as it was to the Israelites, that is the case to the end of time across the nations towards the end of the world. It is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the people will come to know Jesus. Don't forget that. Or don't confuse doing good actions, good deeds, with the work of mission, the true work of mission, the true work of the church, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. I mean, all those other things, the good things that we do are not valid or valuable, well, no. But for doing the work of Christ. It is the proclamation of the Word of Christ. So, coming back to Israel, coming back to God's fairness, is God fair? Did the Israelites hear? Did God's Old Testament people hear? Well, the answer is yes. Verse 18, but I ask, did they not hear? His answer is, of course they did. Here is a quote. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The messenger's voice, that is. The messenger's message, that is, has been spread wide and far, and the Israelites did hear it. He asked the same question again, verse number 19. Again I asked, did Israel not understand? 
First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, that is the Gentiles. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. See, the Jews reacted because around them they could see the grace and the mercy of God being extended beyond them. And that extension beyond them showed exactly the problem, that they did not believe what they'd been told. They did not believe what, they'd been, what had been spoken to them. All of the nations, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. They resisted that, which showed they rejected that. And that expressed itself in envy of the nations around Israel. Then, he quotes Isaiah. He's just quoted Moses. He quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. This is the Gentiles. Those who did not ask for me. Those who didn't even know that they didn't know and that they needed to repent and believe and trust in the one true and living God. God revealed himself to them. And they, Isaiah says, boldly, they've rejected that. Even though they knew that that was always God's intention to bring the gospel, the good news, and extend his kingdom and reach to the Gentiles, even though they knew that that would be the case, they rejected it. They hardened their hearts to it. And they themselves forfeited righteousness. This is why they had to establish their own righteousness. Because God's word and God's way and God's righteousness was not enough. Concerning Israel, verse 21, he's just turned his attention. Isaiah has just turned his attention to the Gentiles. Paul lifts out another quote from Isaiah and says this. Concerning Israel, verse 21, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God's arms are open in the same posture that was adopted by the priests in prayer. God's hands are open, calling the Jewish people to him to believe in the righteousness and accept the righteousness, to receive the righteousness that God has established in Jesus. All day long, not just for a period of time, not just kind of a couple of hours during the day or a couple of centuries. All day long, God has been constant in his call to them, in his call to repentance and belief and trust in the righteousness of God, Jesus. So is God fair? Absolutely. Some think that God is not fair. Some would suggest that. God has given us everything. He's given us his word to tell us, have we received it? Have we believed it? God has given us Jesus to save us, to rescue us. Have we believed in him? Have we trusted in him? Have we said, yes, Lord, please forgive me for my sin. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross instead of and for me. Please, may he be the Lord of my life. Have we said that to him? Do we think that in some way God is stingy 
that God is not fair to humanity because He's chosen a group of people and it'll only be them who are saved. Well, look at how extensive the gospel is going out across the nations. God is fair. God sends preachers to speak of the righteousness that's been established, not by oneself, but by Jesus for our sake. So, religious zeal doesn't save. That's always been the case. Believing confession does save. That's always been the case. And how has God achieved his mission in the world, first with the Jews and then the Gentiles, in exactly the same way, the declaration by those preachers who are sent by him? Might you be one of them? Might you be one of them who speaks about Jesus, who brings the gospel to a whole new group of people who've never heard it before, to Gentile people, to Jewish people? Might you be that person? Do you see how they're commended in the Old Testament? How beautiful are the feet of those. This was Paul for the Jews. He was a messenger to the Gentiles. He's also a messenger and a witness to the Jews. And there were others like him who spoke of Jesus and his righteousness. Religious zeal doesn't save. There's proof Believing confession does save. <laughs> There's proof. And God's mission is achieved by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are fair, that we have rebelled against you, that we have removed you from the throne, or at least attempted to remove you from the throne. But Father, out of your great love and mercy, you sent Jesus to die for that sin. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for speaking to us, for speaking to your world, for declaring the gospel to this world, first the Jew, then the Gentile. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for that gospel. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for that gospel. May we never be ashamed of it. We know that it is the saving power of God. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we may proclaim it unashamedly to the ends of the earth until the end of time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.